My name is Evgeny Marozov, and I'll be your host. Welcome back to the Santiago Boys, a podcast about a group of radical engineers, engineers who are helping Salvador Allende, the Chilean president, to build his socialist dream. And they're doing it with computers and cybernetics, but they're not having much luck yet. We've reached a very crucial point in our narrative, a point at which something dramatic and rather tragic is about to unfold. And we arrive to this point with quite a bit of confusion about the state of Cybersyn and what future awaits all of its main characters. Stafford Beer has increasingly distanced himself from the project, and he became something of a radical, opposed to the very bureaucracy that invited him to Chile. Fernando Flores continued his meteoric rise through the government, but at this point he knows that something terrible is about to happen. It's for this reason, perhaps, that he has asked for the operations room to be dismantled. He wants to make sure that it doesn't get into the wrong hands. All of it is happening while the opposition to Salvador Allende applauding against him. So in this episode, we are going back to that fateful day when Allende's government fell and our characters' lives and hopes were shattered. The day of the coup. Stay with us. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ayanda is in trouble, and he knows it. It's September 10th, and he's facing a crisis that could end his presidency, and perhaps his life. He won the elections three years earlier with a lot of hope and excitement, but now things are falling apart. There is a strike that paralyzes the country, there is a rumor of a coup that could happen any day, and there are a lot of people who want him gone. It might seem that it's not all gloom, though. Just look at thousands of his supporters, who just a week earlier poured into the streets to celebrate the third anniversary of his election. But, as the CIA notes in one of their reports, Allende finds little solace in those numbers. Allende said that he felt as though he had just attended the funeral of the country. He said that most of those attending the rally were people who supported the government, but he noted that they were not an armed force to be used in a confrontation with the military. Allende is much, much weaker than his enemies suspect. He said that the popular power was a good term for speeches, but realistically, the people who support him are without weapons, and they could not face the armed force's firepower successfully. He said that it was his belief that his presence as the head of government might lead to a confrontation which could result in 100,000 deaths. With danger at the doorstep, Allende's team have taken drastic steps to protect his reign. They have amassed weapons, including bazookas, in an attempt to hold off the looming threat of violence. But many are already asking the obvious. Is it just a futile effort against the military armed to the teeth? So with Santiago Abbas with rumors of another coup, tensions do run high. Fernando Flores joins General Prats to meet Allende at one of his residences. The general remains loyal to Allende, but the problem is that he is no longer commander-in-chief, having renounced his top position in favor of another general, General Pinochet. But Prats still holds some influence in the government and is a force to contend with. Hence this meeting with the president. So Fernando and Prats get there early and they are waiting for Allende to show up. Prats suggests that they go to the shooting range in the backyard and start practicing their aim. It's a bit of an ominous sign, to say the least, especially given Fernando's experience with guns. He's asking to me if I know how to shoot. I said, no, I had never had one weapon for me. And, I, and then they give me one weapon and and it was horribly. The only thing I remember, and he told me that to me. Allende arrives later, and he tells them his plan. He wants to call for a referendum, a referendum where the people would be able to decide if they want him to go or stay. It's a risky move, but it could also be a way out of this mess. But will it work? 
Will it happen? Will it matter? Remember Carlos Senna, the Brazilian engineer? Well, with the clock ticking down, he knows he has to get out of Chile before it's too late. But as he wakes up to a day that will change Chile forever, Carlos starts worrying about catching his flight to Peru. The transportation strike has thrown a wrench in his plans, and to make matters worse, the ride that he booked never shows up. She never came. She never came. I went to the street to find some taxi. So just when it seems like all hope is lost, Carlos catches a lucky break, as another driver takes pity on him and his family. But as they make their way to the airport, he can't shake off the feeling that something is off. I could see some trucks with soldiers in the airport. I thought, well, this is our maneuvers. But what he doesn't know is that this is not just an ordinary day. This is September 11th, 1973. The day of the coup d'etat, the very coup that will overthrow Allende. While Carlos is driving to the airport hoping for a miracle, Allende is facing his own nightmare. He wakes up to find out that the Navy has rebelled against him and that the army may join them soon. The first reports of suspicious troop movements arrive at Allende's residence late at night, still on the tents. Allende's political advisor, John Garcés, spends a very restless night at the residence. As he works on Allende's speech about the referendum, he notices that the first reports of troop movements start trickling in. As news of the naval mutiny reaches Allende, he frantically tries to get a handle on the situation. John Garces rushes to Allende's side and finds the president in his pajamas, already on the phone. When the chips are down, who does the president call on? Well, General Brady. Yes, this is the same man who just hours earlier gave a suspicious wink to Gabriel Rodriguez. Now he's reassuring Allende that the army will quash the Navy's mutiny. But can he be trusted? Allende and his bodyguards race to La Moneda as Joan Garces follows closely behind. With the Navy in revolt and the army's allegiance uncertain, every passing moment could mean the difference between victory and defeat. As Chile braces itself for the worst, Allende has a secret dark tech weapon in his arsenal, a direct line to the pro-government radio stations. But for how long would it remain open? So he gives a speech, an important speech, a speech where he tries to reassure the nation. The opening moments are fraught with tension, but his message is clear. He believes in the people of Chile, and he calls on them to fight for their country and their government with everything they have. In those early moments at the palace, Allende is still banking on the loyal military to quash the rebellion. But he's up against the problem. Pinochet, the leader of the armed forces, won't even take his calls. Little does he know, Pinochet is holed up in a war room of his own, being in constant communication with the other generals. Allende always knew that his daughter Beatrice has inherited his sense of political commitment. And so he certainly made plans for the worst-case scenario, and obviously he hoped to keep her away from harm's way. But on this fateful day, Beatrice has other ideas, as Tanya Harmer points out. Seven months pregnant, Beatrice was insistent that she had to get to La Moneda to be with her father, and she drove through a barricade that had already been erected at La Moneda when she arrived to get into the, the presidential palace. Inside La Moneda, Beatrice handles a task of utmost importance. She was responsible for destroying any the remaining sensitive documents that were in La Moneda, but also keeping channels of communication open with the Cuban embassy and with Miguel Enriquez. Enriquez is the leader of MIR, 
that radical group that supports Allende but doesn't trust the military. Enriquez wants to get Allende out of La Moneda. He says that he has a paramilitary force that can try to rescue him. But Allende refuses. He says that he will not abandon his post. Through Beatriz, he tells Enriquez to take over after him, to continue fighting for his socialist dream. But Enriquez must know that the odds are against them. His forces are outnumbered, and they will certainly be outgunned by the military. Will they even be able to survive, let alone fight back? As the future of Chile hangs in the balance, one man steps into the unknown. His name is Fernando Flores. My phone was no working that day. But as soon as I knew, I, I wake up and I, and I went to the, tried to go to the Moneda, but that was already 8 or 8.30. And I cannot lie, I need to walk. And some people recognize me when I was walking through, to, to this place. It's a Shakespeare drama where you are entered to the, the door of the dead. In doing so, he earns the respect and admiration even of his critics, like Enrique Farnet, for example. The fact that the day of the coup, he was in his house with his wife and all children and decided to leave them behind and uh, go to the presidential palace to be with Allende. Um, not everybody would do that. Little does Fernando know that the coup plotters have mastered the arts of the dark attack. They've been quietly sabotaging the government's communications for months. And now that they have succeeded, the coup plotters hold all the cards. They have learned all the right lessons from Cuba in Brazil. La Operación Silencio, como se la llamó para callar las radios, fue uno de los equipos que se formó para el golpe. This is Monica Gonzalez. She's a Chilean journalist who knows a lot about the coup. She mentions a secret plan called Operation Silence. It's that cunning plan to cut off Allende's communications. And to make sure, on the other hand, that the leaders of the coup could actually talk to each other without anyone listening. They also hook up the defense ministry with the radio stations that hate Allende. They know they will need that capacity after the coup in order to keep the situation under control. And, of course, they need to shut down the stations that support Allende. Some of them with missiles. But on this fateful day, there is one big question on everyone's mind. Where are the soldiers who are loyal to Allende? Is there anyone who can stop this coup? There is one person who might be able to do something. His name is Orlando Letelier. He's now the Minister of Defense. Just a month ago, he was in Peru, talking about Chile's vision for a new way of using technology in the world. But now he has a very different problem. We had overheard him on the phone. He was talking on the phone right there at the table. This is his San Francisco. He remembers his father talking to Allende that very morning of the day of the coup. He was saying, I'll come to the La Moneda, to the presidential palace. And Allende said, no, I need my Minister of Defense at the Ministry of Defense. Orlando Letelier is ready to go and help Allende. But as he gets ready to leave his house and go to the ministry, he notices something strange. One of his bodyguards is not there. Francisco Letelier remembers what happened. We were all there when, when, you know, he said, well, where's the other driver? And he said, oh, his wife is having a baby. But Letelier doesn't think much of it. He goes towards the Ministry of Defense anyway. But when he gets there, he sees something shocking. The place is surrounded by soldiers and people wearing orange scarves. That's how we know that they're part of the coup. But Letelier, of course, doesn't know it yet. He said, you know, I'm the Minister of Defense. I'm the person that gives the orders here. Let me in. But they don't let him in. They don't listen to him at all. And then something incredible happens. And he felt a gun in his back and a voice that said, let the minister in. And when he saw who it was holding the gun in his back, it was that bodyguard who hadn't shown up for work, whose wife was supposedly giving birth that day. And in just a few seconds, Letelier's life is on the line, with soldiers pointing their submachine guns at him. 
Will he survive this nightmare? In the meantime, Carlos Senna barely makes it to the airport in time. My flight was the very last one. Carlos knows that he must get out before it's too late. If he stays and the coup does develop, he'll be sent back to Brazil and face torture in prison. But getting on the plane is not an easy thing. I remember that entering the plane, the stewardess, she was in quite hurry and uh, she, she didn't care much for us. She said, sit down, sit down, sit down, everybody sit down. The atmosphere on board is electric and Carlos can sense that something terrible is about to happen. He longs for a glass of French wine, but it's too early for that. And will they ever take off? What of all the other Santiago boys? Well, Raul Espejo, for example, finds out about the coup as soon as he wakes up. Early in the morning, about 7 o'clock, I started to hear the news in my house. And it was clear that uh, the militants were coming in. And get this, he still goes to Corfo when he has a mission to accomplish, or so he thinks. And where does he go? Well, he heads to the telex room. Yes, the telex room where the clunky machines whir and click, working tirelessly to process all the information that's pouring in. In all these industries, there were people who were suffering and understanding what was going on, and then they passed information. Needless to say, no one reads those reports. As the rule tunes into Allende's radio address, the airwaves crackle with a sense of gloom. It's hard to believe that just nine months ago, Raúl was in the operations room, greeting Allende with a sense of excitement and even hope. Now everything is falling apart. Allende's voice is grim and hopeless as he tells the nation that he won't give up or surrender. I remember very, very clearly and with great sadness the last words of uh, Allende. They came there through the radio. Raúl doesn't say anything. He knows that Cybersyn is over. And uh, we were there, and it was at that point that I said, this is it, you know, he was not going to come out alive. As the chaos and violence of the coup rage on around him, Raúl knows that he has to act quickly if he wants to save whatever is still possible of Cybersyn. Carlos Sena actually did his part just a few days earlier. I saw, I perceived that the disaster was coming. So I collected material, I collected software, I collected letters in Intact. And when I left, I took it everything with me. I sent my ship to Peru. Nothing was lost. Thus, Raul and a co-worker grab four boxes of papers and sneak out of the building. They want to preserve what they built together, but outside, it's a war zone. They have to dodge bullets as they try to get away. It's not going to be easy to escape. But then things get even worse. When they almost lose everything that they risk their lives for, the boxes could land them in jail or worse. We were stopped at least twice and we had to go into the entrances of buildings to somehow get out of the bullets coming and going. The soldiers let them go. As they journey on, they witness this new Chile, a Chile that's happy and celebrating the coup, at least in the richer parts of Santiago. According to John Garces, Allende stays calm for the first hour of the coup. He thinks he might still have a chance to stop it. Remember that failed coup from a few months ago? Well, after all, Allende did manage to quell it. So why not now? Besides, he still has the Carabineros. Chile's police, that are guarding La Moneda with guns and loyalty. But for how long? Lo que naturalmente no, no, no anticipó es la traición del jefe del ejército. John says that Allende starts losing hope when he finds out that Pinochet, his friend and ally, has turned against him. 
how will he deal with this betrayal? In the meantime, Carlos Senna is still stuck on that plane. The pilot didn't have the authorization to take off. On this day, the Air Force is truly ready to attack anything that moves. The pilot thus makes a very risky decision. A decision that could save or kill Carlos, but also all the other passengers on board. But he could smell that things weren't very well, and he took off without authorization. So the plane finally takes off. Some people were standing, not everybody was sitting down to take off. It looks like Carlos Sana has escaped yet another coup. He knows he's lucky to be alive. As for Allende, the final blow comes when he realizes that the Carabineros, the previously loyal police forces that were surrounding La Moneda, are beginning to retreat from their positions. At this point, he understands that he can no longer count on anyone inside the armed forces or the police, at least not on the kind of scale required to oppose the Navy or the Army. So he has to make some tough decisions, and make them he does. He tells John Garces to leave the palace and tell the world about what really happened in Chile. Everyone knows what's about to come. The Air Force is already preparing to rain destruction down upon La Moneda. But then they rejects the general's offer to have him flown out of the country. He decides to fight till the end. But it's not just John Garces. Allende does want to try to save some of those who are still with him in La Moneda. In a sad moment, he tells women that they need to get out. That list includes his daughter, Beatrice. Tanya Harmer tells us more about that difficult moment. And she resisted this so fiercely from what all the witnesses inside the palace um, have said, um, to the point where her father had to force her out of the presidential palace. Um, and when the door closed behind her, witnesses say she stood in the street pounding on the door to be allowed to be let back in. Um, to be with her father. The arrival of the Hawker Hunter Jets over La Moneda is like the opening salvo of a deadly symphony, their engines howling as they descend upon the palace. Ironically, these jets, the pride and joy of British military exports, are designed by someone who lives just a few miles away from Stafford Pier. And then, around noon, the first missiles hit. One of the first bombs that was thrown by the military was exactly in my office. All this chaos around him makes Fernando realize the harsh reality of military power. I never imagined I was going to be with missiles from bombs, from, because to missile as a building in the center of the city, it's very easy that you can't the missile fighting with another building and killing civil people. Hmm? But they did it. My imagination was going to be tanks open the doors and enter with troop. With each strike, Fernando's resolve to make it out alive only grows stronger. I need to be responsible to try to get alive because I have five kids and, and they don't have nothing. Then if I die, they are going to be poor people. We don't know what life they're going to have them. Then I said, I want to make how much I can to get Alive here. And that's why I have this conversation with Allende to, to convince him that it was well, good. And I wish he had made a decision to be a heroical death already. Finally, after what seems like an eternity, the missiles stop falling. Allende sends Fernando to negotiate with the military, but Fid has other plans. And soon Fernando finds himself arrested. With most women and Fernando gone, Allende's courage in the face of overwhelming odds is still unwavering. As the battle rages on, he continues to fight, joined by his trusted doctors, bodyguards, and even his mistress. Some people say that he even shoots a bazooka, his last stand. A lot of the palace is destroyed, its rooms full of smoke and rubble. Allende's closest collaborator has taken his own life. The soldiers are coming closer. It's time to give up. Allende's people start living with Allende behind them. But then, with the battle lost and defeat imminent, he returns to the room. 
Allende sits on the couch and takes out the gun that Fidel Castro gave him. And then he shoots himself. It's all over. Beatrice is out of La Moneda, but she's not safe yet, as Tanya Harmer reminds us. When they left um, and they found themselves on the street, they first sheltered in the basement of a nearby building, and then it's from there that she heard the Hawker Hunter jets bombing the palace, and then they find themselves kind of sheltering in a in a upmarket hotel where they heard the news that her father had died and people sh- popping sham- champagne corks. Beatrice faces another problem as she tries to get out of downtown. What happens when she's stopped is she feigns contractions um, and she does so so convincingly being seven months pregnant that the military waved them on. And it's only thanks to this that they arrive at a, a friend's house where they're able to shelter. The revolution of red wine and empanadas has ended, but the revolution of champagne and caviar is just about to begin. It's a night of fear and uncertainty for Fernando, as he finds himself interrogated at the Ministry of Defense. It's like the stuff straight out of movies. The blinding light of a lamp makes it hard for him to see the faces of the interrogators. I believe that at the beginning, they had the idea that we are using the telex for doing some kind of rebellion and be the counter the force against them. And their right to worry. Fernando's replacement at Corfor, as we already noted, is an ex-Air Force general who clearly is opposed to the coup. The military watches him carefully, afraid that he might use those taluxes to fight back somehow. Just hours after the coup, the military begins taking over Santiago and making up lists of Allende's people that need to be arrested. Sergio Bitar, the former minister of mining, hears his name and decides to turn himself in. But to do so, he must walk through a city that's been turned into a war zone. I saw people when I was going to the military school floating in the river in Mapocho in the middle of the city, killed. Bitar gets to the military school and he sees his friends, senators, trade unionists, ministers. Even Fernando Flores and Orlando Letelier are here. Many of them think it's just something temporary. They're just being checked out. They will soon be released. But it's much worse than they think. The next day, we listen to the helicopter arriving. And uh, then, a few minutes later, they started crying, screaming, giving orders to us, insulting us, prepare your things, you have 15 minutes. And we were taken to some, somewhere we didn't know. We were put the hood, and we arrived to an island. The destination is a bleak and unwelcoming place. They don't know it yet, but life is about to play a cruel joke on them this harsh island will turn them into the very workers that they spent the last three years celebrating. In Washington, the mood is one of jubilation. The White House convenes a high-level meeting to discuss the aftermath of the coup. Amidst all the chatter, one important question about America's own role in this tragedy is not being asked. Peter Kornblow shares his thoughts on the matter. The United States was not needed on the ground. The Chilean military did not need our planes, our tanks, our pilots, our money for uh, the D-Day of of the coup itself. Um, But it did need kind of a guarantee of support, and it needed uh, a guarantee that the United States would become involved if Allende's forces fought back. Kissinger is called and sarcastic at the White House meeting. Losers don't become martyrs in Latin America, he sneers, oblivious, obviously, to cases like Che Guevara. But as the group tries to figure out how to deal with this coup, they have a problem. They don't want to be the first ones to recognize this new regime. They would rather have a country in Latin America do that for them. Who could that be? As it happens, another brutal military regime in South America is more than happy to fraternize with Pinochet. A regime that is very much admired by Richard Nixon. A regime that also has played a role in helping to overthrow Allende. 
When the coup happens, Brazil is the first country to recognize Pinochet. This is Roberto Simon, the Brazilian journalist. Pinochet gives an interview to a Brazilian uh, magazine and says, we're, we were still shooting when the Brazilian ambassador came to, to tell us that, you know, Brazil was recognizing us as the legitimate government of uh, Chile. Brazil also helps in other ways. Brazil becomes really an advocate for Chile, you know, all over the world with European countries that were reluctant in, in uh, establishing ties with the, the Pinochet junta, such as West Germany. But there is a dark side to all this help. A month after the coup, you had Brazilian intelligence officials inside the national stadium, the stadium that had become really a, a prison camp, uh, helping Chilean torturers interrogate people. Held at the stadium are some Brazilian colleagues of Carlos Sena, the same colleagues who took part in drafting that anti-torture report, the report that got him in trouble in the first place. The life's at risk now. As soon as I arrived in Lima, we tried to help people, mostly friends who stayed in, in Santiago. Sadly, the people who fought torture might now face it themselves. They were under martial law. They would be shot by the military because they were working with the Chilean left parties in, in Santiago. And we moved every institution we could move in Europe and in America and in South America to take them. Carlos gets to Lima on September 11th, still not knowing anything about the coup as he lands. The airport was filled of reporters. They were photographing, taking pictures and so forth. And I thought, well, somebody very important must be in our flight to join so many reporters and newspaper people. In Lima, he works on an exciting cyberscene-like project that uses computer models for progressive economic development. And he's even surrounded by Brazilians and Argentinians who used to be close to Allende. And for a time, the spirit of the Santiago boys does live on in Lima. Sadly, their progress would soon be cut short by yet another coup. Carlos is unlucky like that. Stafford Beer is heartbroken to hear about all the violence in Chile. For almost two years, he's been traveling to Santiago, excited by Allende's promise of a peaceful transition to socialism. But with the president's death, it seems that all his work was for nothing. Stafford's daughter, Vanilla, remembers how sad her father was after the coup. I called the house fucking um, from Paris because I knew about the coup. For Stafford, Allende's downfall is not just a political loss. It's also a personal one. I rang home to make sure that Stafford was okay. And of course he wasn't, he said he was. He said, yes, darling, I'm all right. And said that he was doing his best to try and get his friends out. Stafford has been suffering from a terrible case of survivor's guilt, feeling as if he had personally failed the people of Chile. One of the reasons he didn't go back was because he felt he owed it to Sally and the kids not to die. And he was terribly upset, actually, that he didn't die. He felt he should have gone there and died with the, with the people that died. And so Stafford channels his grief into action. He starts to get British elites to talk about the horrors in Chile and to support human rights there. He even sends a message to the foreign secretary, a message that Vanilla is kind enough to read for us. It's to the foreign secretary in Downing Street on the 14th of September 1973 was advisor to Chilean government for the last two years, stop. Had last meeting with Allende, 26th of July, stop. Most strongly urge, as British subject, we do not recognize illegal junta, stop. Call for protection for accredited ambassador, Alvaro Bunster, now apparently displaced, stop. Signed, Professor Stafford Beer. But most of these efforts are, in fact, in vain. And Stafford eventually does become desperate. He's trying to convince anyone who will listen that Pinochet is a brutal dictator who needs to be stopped. But few seem to care. Not the politicians, not the media, not even his own colleagues. Why is that? Why is Britain so indifferent to the fate of Chile? Well, it turns out there is a reason for that. A reason that goes back decades 
and it involves a lot of Cold War secrets and lies. Kevin John McAvoy knows all about it. He's a historian we heard about before, the one studying British propaganda in Chile. The British government was actually delighted that Allende had been overthrown. And in the, the immediate aftermath of the coup, I mean, the, the declassified record shows that the, the British ambassador to Chile, uh, Reginald Second Days, is writing back to the Foreign Office. He's saying, you know, this is going to be a boon for British business. After the coup, Britain stands out in other ways. Here's what The Guardian's Andy Backett has to say. In the embassy in Santiago, the British embassy, they didn't open up the embassy to refugees from Chile. So unlike a lot of other countries, they didn't make it easy for people to leave Chile to come to Britain immediately. And British business interests in Chile um, were quite quick to praise the military regime that came to power afterwards. Little does Stafford know that he's fighting an uphill battle. While he's fighting for democracy and human rights in Chile, some of his closest allies, or at least his ex-allies, are doing the exact opposite. But let's set Stafford aside for a moment and go back to that fateful day of the coup. Allende did have some loyal supporters with him. Remember, his ministers, his guards, some friends, but also some police officers, as we already mentioned, the Carabineros. The Carabineros were supposed to protect law and order and to protect Allende. And at first they did. But then something happened. Something that changed everything. They betrayed Allende. They joined forces with Pinochet. And they helped seal Allende's fate in doing so. But why did they do that? Why did they switch sides at the last minute? John Garces has been asking himself these questions for almost 50 years now. El sigue con el apoyo. Thus, in the early hours of the coup, the Carabineros still support Allende. The top two commanders even joined him inside La Moneda. But then, says John, an internal coup erupts around 9 in the morning. The plotters take control of the telecommunication center. And from there, they issue orders to retreat. This is what marks the end for Allende. But wait a moment. A telecommunication center? What is this telecommunication center? What is this room? Where is it? Who's behind it? And what's the connection, if any, to CyberSyn? These are the questions that haunted me for months and months as I dug deeper into the story. And what I found out kind of blew my mind. What if Chile had not one but two high-tech systems? One for socialism and one for policing. One for empowerment and one for control. So here's something that surprised me. Something that made me rethink everything I thought I knew about Cybersyn. Something that made me realize that it was not as unique or revolutionary as I had originally imagined. It turns out that there was another similar attack venture in Chile. A system that was older and more advanced than Cybersyn. A system that was designed for a very different purpose. A system that was created by a man with a very different agenda than Allende or Stafford Beer. His name was Vicente Celes Huerta, and he was the mastermind behind cybernetic policing in the country. He was a former head of the Carabineros, the National Police Force, and he had immense connections in Washington. As many at the time, he had learned cutting-edge techniques at one of those police academies for Latin American officers, and he had used his knowledge and connections to build a network of police stations all across Chile using radio and, get it, telex. By the way, I'd like to thank the historian Stuart Shader for drawing my attention to Huerta. This was years before Allende came to power. And Huerta had help from the U.S. government, obviously, who wanted to do everything to track down any potential communist rebels. Remember, they were fighting this big counterinsurgency campaign. But then Huerta made some mistakes. He hated Allende and he tried to stop him from becoming president. So shortly after the election, he ended up fleeing to the U.S. So he wasn't there when Cybersyn took shape. But here's the kicker. Chile wasn't even the first country to have this kind of telex network. There was another one in Central America, set up by the CIA in the early 60s, almost a decade before Cybersyn. This network linked Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and some other places. With the help from the CIA, they used it to share information, of course, on rebels, dissidents, all these communist agitators. 
It was basically like a precursor to the internet, but internet for repression, not freedom. Cybersyn came along much, much later. I talked to Alan Iron, an investigative journalist who knows a lot about desk wars in Central America. He's written about this telex network decades ago. I talked to a couple of the U.S. officials and technicians who helped set it up uh, and saw some of their documents. And likewise, their counterparts uh, in Central America described the same uh, system to me. Uh, the teletypes were used, uh, and this was something that was pr provided to them. Well, it was, it was a combined operation involving USAID, State Department, uh, and the CIA. They set up this system where each local uh, regime would get a centralized filing system uh, set up uh, where they would do surveillance on uh, dissidents. Judging by the description of it, it was quite an operation. This information uh, would be stored and would be given, copied to the U.S., copied to the, the CIA station at the U.S. Embassy. Uh, and when relevant, uh, it would also be exchanged via teletype over national lines. So, the, uh, for example, the Guatemalan and Salvadoran uh, security forces were in frequent uh, touch uh, with each other. So here we have a Talix network linking police forces into a complex and rather sophisticated information sharing system. And that's happening already in the early 1960s. How could the Santiago boys, with their naive belief in the saving power of management cybernetics and all those abstract debates about workers and technocrats, possibly do anything against this high-tech repression? And then there is this. The famed operations room wasn't even that original either. The police have been using similar systems for years. Huerta must have been familiar with them when he was attending his courses at all of those police academies back in Washington. One of the most celebrated features of the International Police Academy in Washington, D.C. was the Police Operations Control Center, or POCC. This is George Shader, the John Hopkins historian that we heard from before. The idea was that in this simulation room, the trainees would learn what centralizing command, coordinating messages, coordinating resources, gathering intelligence, what all of those practices looked like. Stafford would have loved all the data that they were getting. So there were maps, there were screens, they would project images of suspected subversives, they would map robberies, fires, uh, they would use grease pencils to write on the screen to outline the movement of police forces and other emergency responders, and they would communicate to one another using telephones, using teletypes. Sure, they didn't have those fancy chairs, and probably they didn't have enough space to put their whiskey glass. That didn't stop them from building this sophisticated apparatus of control, an apparatus that eventually helped crush Salvador Allende. So Stafford Beer and his Chilean friends are really proud of the ops room, right? They thought they had created something new and revolutionary and so cutting edge. What they didn't know was that the CIA had been doing the same thing for even a longer time than the police. Ever since they overthrew the government of Guatemala in 1954, they had been using these rooms full of telex machines and wires and weird gadgets to plan such operations. For someone like David Phillips, the CIA's gossip czar, who masterminded many of such operations. Opsums were completely old hat. But in the early 60s, when John McCone took over as director of the agency, a decision was made to pay even more attention to the Opsums. A very big and permanent Opsum was even built in the new headquarters that CIA was constructing at the time. There is this magazine article from 1967 that describes what it looked like. At Langley's elaborate seventh floor operations center, a bank of high-speed printers received top-secret traffic from the National Security Agency, diplomatic reports from embassies overseas, information from the Pentagon's Defense Intelligence Agency, as well as data from CIA men around the world. I must say, it does sound rather impressive. 
The operations room is hooked into the White House Situation Room, the Pentagon's military command post, and the State Department through a near-miraculous phalanx of teletype machines. One data page per minute can be fed in, encoded, flashed onto one of the centers, then decoded the instant it arrives. So you can imagine how this A must have laughed when they saw that article in the Observer about Cybersyn. A cutting-edge ops room in Santiago? Well, yeah, right. The Santiago boys do have a tough time after Allende is gone. Gabriel Rodriguez thinks he can go back to work a few days after the coup. That turns out to be a very bad idea. When the, the coup came on, on September 11, I, I hide. And then in some moment, uh, people arrive to, to catch me and to bring me, to send me to the Estadio Nacional. And the secretaries helped me, and then I abandoned the office from a different door, and finally I got in hiding for, for f- one week. Raul Espejo, too, has a rather scary experience after the coup. It's like something out of a horror film. Raul spots two military trucks arriving to his house. They're here to take him to Corfo, but he doesn't yet know why. And he only realizes how they found him when he gets into the truck. I was told that people at Corfo wanted to see me. And I had to go down, talk to these people. There he sees someone he knows rather well, an engineer who happens to be on the other side politically. He was the guy who had taken them to my house. And we've met this engineer before. Remember those strange visitors who came to Corfo to snoop around right before the coup? He's the man who might have been behind them. And he told me that uh, they wanted to, to use again the network, the telex network, and they wanted me to help them in doing that. So, <laughs> absolutely crazy. But when he gets to Corfo, Raul sees how much things have changed. It was all just papers on the floor and very much destroyed. And uh, uh, very sad. Raul knows he's in trouble, but he's not going to tell anything about the Telex network. There is another guy, a technician, with no connection to politics whatsoever, who might know more. Why don't they ask him, says Raul. I gave that name, and I disappeared. I just went. And that's perhaps one of the reasons I'm, I can talk to you now. As for others, well, cases differ. Gibbon Siep, for example, the German designer of the operations room, survives the coup, but his troubles are far from over. A few weeks after Pinochet takes over, the police arrive at Intac. One of Guy's junior designers is detained on suspicion of waging biological warfare. Eventually, they take him to the National Stadium. He's thin, collaborating with an American scientist, a biologist. This is what gets you suspected of waging biological warfare in this new Chile. Soon thereafter, three policemen show up at Gis' doorstep. They're here to search for weapons. I never have had in my whole life a revolver, a weapon in my hand. They take Guy to a police station and start grilling him about the Cuban posters that they spot on the walls of his house. Guy tries to reason with his interrogators, but they don't want to listen. They are ready to lock him up, and they keep accusing him of some incredible sins. And uh, he said, no, you have uh, what, uh, poisoned, innocent, young Brazilians or Chileans' brains with Marxist ideas. I looked at this gentleman who said there is this confirmation, and uh, I said, look, it was the other way around. I would say I learned from these young persons what politics is about, practical politics, you see. With a cool hat and a quick thinking, Guy slips away to the bathroom. He chances upon a phone, and he calls his wife. Well, I had one great luck, one great luck, really. Otherwise, I would probably not be talking to you now. The German diplomats eventually get him out. But not everyone is so lucky. Pinochet's military machine is now sweeping across the country. The workers, the trade unionists, the state enterprise managers, they're all among the first to be targeted. 
Many of them are subject to horrific torture and execution at the hands of the so-called caravan of death. They make their way to Antofagasta in Chile's north, where, long before the coup, one of the Santiago boys was sent on a Corfu mission. He's a close friend of Gabriel Rodriguez. He was absolutely happy living there because he has this diving possibility every day in the morning. And now the caravan of death is coming after him. His name is Eugenio Ruiz Tagle. You might remember Eugenio from our previous episodes. He's the young Mapu engineer who helped Gabriel teach a course on dependency theory, but he was also instrumental in securing the site for the operations room. Without him, who knows if he would have ever even heard about those ergonomic chairs. But now he's in danger. On hearing his name, he turns himself in. He thinks he can reason with the authorities. But he's wrong. Raul Espejo. They killed him. He was one of the casualties of our project. But Eugenio's mother has to find out what happened to him. She has to see his mutilated corpse, his missing eye, his bullet wounds. He's one of 70 people who perish in the few weeks that the caravan of Das raids the area. This new Chile will be brutal. Back in the UK, Stafford Beer has become a lifeline for many of the Chileans fleeing Pinochet's regime. God knows how I'm earning my living, he writes three months after the coup. It has now become a full-time job for him. But deep inside, Stafford fears crushed by the tragedy, as Vanilla Beer recalls. He had gone into that um, Cybersyn project expecting a, a success. You know, and, and it was the most dramatic failure, possibly the only failure of his life. And it's not the idea of failure that freaked him, but the fact that the things that he valued were so casually destroyed, early Allende and the team in, in Chile. He opens the doors of his mansion to Chileans from Cybersyn turning his lavish home into some sort of a refuge. You never knew who was there, actually. It was wonderful fun whenever I visited. It was uh, these shell-shocked people, shell-shocked, who, who were listening to Stafford and he would give them music and try and heal things, I suppose. The word about Stafford Beer's generosity travels fast. Soon enough, Chilean visitors even try their luck with his brother Ian. Uh, they were all terribly disappointed because I think they thought that I was going to give up a bed for the night and everything else, which, of course, I didn't. But Stafford is still haunted by what happened in Chile. He takes his guest to the Athenaeum, where he first met Fernando and dreamt up Cybersyn. Vanilla Beer recalls how they used this place to their advantage. He loved the idea that he could take Chilean refugees there and plot the counter-coup, which he did. And the idea of taking them to this alleged heartland of, of British control, you know, is, is uh, hysterical as far as he was concerned. Stafford also takes them to the BBC to watch the footage of the Hawker Hunter jets as they bomb La Moneda. The same jets that later end up in Britain for repairs. But there is a twist. The workers at the Rolls-Royce factory refuse to fix them. They stand with Chile. Maybe it wasn't such a bad idea for Stafford to choose that car. But Pinochet's regime is just getting started. He creates a new intelligence agency, DINA, and puts Manuel Contreras in charge. You remember him, right? The guy who was obsessed with Vietnam and who wanted to crush the rebels at all costs, even before Allende was gone. He and Pinochet go way back. And they share a vision of how to rule Chile with an iron fist. Ese hombre que desde el primer minuto con su inteligencia del poder se arrima a Pinochet. Monica Gonzalez, the Chilean journalist who wrote the most authoritative account of the coup, knows this well. She says that Pinochet needs someone like Contreras in order to get him all the information that he craves. Information on his enemies, and he has many enemies. But can their partnership last? Can they trust each other in this paranoid world? Dina does have a lot of resources at its disposal. It inherits a huge archive from the anti-Allende intelligence network that we talked about before. Remember those 70 analysts working under an ex-colonel 
yeah, that's them. And, of course, predictably, some of the former members of Patria in Libertad also joined in. They are all on the same team now. The same team that wants to wipe out Allende's legacy, one leftist at a time. You might remember that almost everything here has already been done in Brazil, especially, of course, the idea of privately funded and operated networks turning into draconian intelligence services after the coup. In Chile, though, this is done with so much more blood and violence. But some of Allende's radical followers, above all Mir, are not giving up so easily. They're not only hiding in safe houses, they're even trying to make their own weapons. Francesca Lessa, the Oxford academic who studied those efforts, explains. This JCR submachine gun uh, initially began to be built uh, in Santiago in late 1973. JCR is something we mentioned in an earlier episode. It's the coordinating council of leftist movements across Latin America. But because of the coup, uh, with all the militants relocating to Argentina, also the production of the submachine gun relocated alongside the militants to San Justo, uh, which is a city in the province of uh, Buenos Aires. Manuel Contreras thus gets a new mission. He wants to stop these leftist rebels who are collaborating with each other and moving across borders to plot against Chile and he has some rather sophisticated high-tech tools to help him. Contreras just needs to figure out how to put them to good use. But while Contreras is busy with his scheme, Fernando and other former members of Allende's government are stuck on Dawson Island. A cold and desolate place where they have to work hard and endure terrible conditions. Well, at least they can experience the very proletarian lifestyle that they've been fantasizing about. They started a system of hard work starting at 7 in the morning till 5 in the evening. This is Sergio Bitar, the former minister of mining under Allende. He tells us how they were constantly harassed and humiliated. We wouldn't receive any information except that they put information on us saying all these guys are killers, are they have to pay for what they did. There was a guy who had to keep two children, two, two sons, and uh, he was expecting to see that the sons were dead. That guy, by the way, is the former Minister of Education, and one of his two sons is none other than Miguel Enriquez, the little Mir. The prisoners have little contact with the outside world. They can't even read books about art, like Cubism because that sounds too communist. And they took that away because they thought it was about Cuba, Cuba. So, so it wasn't easy, so. But we took notes and, and we continued. And I think that period was very important to think. But their families, of course, are also suffering. Francisco Letelier, the son of Orlando Letelier, tells us how heart-wrenching all of it was. People that talk to me are very surprised when they realize that families of imprisoned people were also imprisoned in their own homes, you know, that we constantly had to dodge bullets, military squads, raids of homes, and arrest. With Manuel Contreras keen to exterminate Allende's loyalists, Fernando in prison, and Stafford Beer pondering the very meaning of life after Cybersyn, our story is far from over. Next on the Santiago Boys, a new monster is born from the ruins of Cybersyn. It uses telexes and computers, but not for planning the economy, for killing people. Stafford Beer sells his home, goes to India, and finds a new friend in the music world. And someone from the Santiago Boys even shows up in Silicon Valley. Is there any chance that Cybersyn is coming back? 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Santiago Boys is a co-production of Cora Media and Postutopia. Writing, research, development, and presentation, Evgeny Marozov. Music main theme, Luca Michele. Audio editing and post-production, Emanuele Moscatelli. Music supervisor, Luca Michele. Post-production assistant, Filippo Mainardi. Post-production producer, Matteo Salsa. The people who've been helping me to organize, record, and process hundreds of interviews are too many to name here, unfortunately. But I'd like to extend special thanks to Chiara Di Leone, Ekaiz Cancela, Nikolai Maximchuk, and Matteo Miavaldi, all of whom helped me in more than one way. Full credits are available on the podcast website, the-santiago-boys.com. <laughs>